Chapter Four of Eben Holden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Eben Holden: A Tale of the North Country by Irving Bachelor. Chapter Four. We listened a while then, but heard no sound in the thicket, although Fred was growling ominously, his hair on end. As for myself. I never had a more fearful hour than that we suffered before the light of morning came. I made no outcry, but clung to my old companion, trembling. He did not stir for a few minutes, and then we crept cautiously into the small hemlocks on one side of the opening. "'Keep still,' he whispered. "'Don't move or speak.' Presently we heard a move in the brush, and then, quick as a flash, Uncle Eb lifted his rifle and fired in the direction of it. Before the loud echo had gone off in the woods, we heard something break through the brush at a run. "'It's a man,' said Uncle Eb, as he listened. "'He ain't losing no time, neither.' We sat listening as the sound grew fainter, and when it ceased entirely, Uncle Eb said he must have got to the road." After a little, the light of the morning began sifting down through the treetops and was greeted with innumerable songs. "'He done noble,' said Uncle Eb, patting the old dog as he rose to poke the fire. "'Pretty good chap, I call him. He can have half my dinner any time he wants it.' "'Who do you suppose it was?' I inquired. "'Roberts, I guess,' he answered. "'and they'll be laying for us when we go out, maybe. "'But if they are, Fred'll find them, "'and I've got old Trusty here, "'and I guess that'll take care of us.' "'His rifle was always flattered with that name of old Trusty "'when it had done him a good turn. "'Soon as the light had come clear, "'he went out in the near woods with dog and rifle "'and beat around in the brush. "'He returned shortly and said he had seen where they came and went. "'I'd have killed him deader in a doornail,' said he, laying down the old rifle, "'if they'd come any nearer.' Then we brought water from the river and had our breakfast. Fred went on ahead of us when we started for the road, scurrying through the brush on both sides of the trail, as if he knew what was expected of him. He flushed a number of partridges, and Uncle Eb killed one of them on our way to the road. We resumed our journey without any further adventure. It was so smooth and level underfoot that Uncle Eb let me get in the wagon after Fred was hitched to it. The old dog went along soberly and without much effort, save when we came to hills or sandy places, when I always got out and ran on behind. Uncle Eb showed me how to break the wheels with a long stick going downhill. I remember how it hit the dog's heels at the first downgrade, and how he ran to keep out of the way of it. We were going like mad in half a minute, Uncle Eb coming after us, calling to the dog. Fred only looked over his shoulder, with a wild eye, at the rattling wagon, and ran the harder. He leaped aside at the bottom, and then we went all in a heap. Fortunately, no harm was done. "'I declare!' said Uncle Eb as he came up to us, puffing like a spent horse, and picked me up unhurt and began to untangle the harness of old Fred. 
I guess he must have thought the devil was after him. The dog growled a little for a moment and bit at the harness, but coaxing reassured him and he went along all right again on the level. At a small settlement the children came out and ran along beside my wagon, laughing and asking me questions. Some of them tried to pet the dog, but old Fred kept to his labor at the heels of Uncle Eb and looked neither to right nor left. We stopped under a tree by the side of a narrow brook for our dinner, and one incident of that meal I think of always when I think of Uncle Eb. It shows the manner of man he was, and with what understanding and sympathy he regarded every living thing. In rinsing his teapot, he accidentally poured a bit of water on a big bumblebee. The poor creature struggled to lift hill, and then another downpour caught him, and still another, until his wings fell drenched. Then his breast began heaving violently, his legs stiffened behind him, and he sank, head downward, in the grass. Uncle Eb saw the death-throes of the bee, and knelt down and lifted the dead body by one of its wings. "'Just look at his velvet coat,' he said, "'and his wings all wet and stiff. They'll never carry him another journey. It's too bad a man has to kill every step he takes.' The bee's tail was moving faintly, and Uncle Eb laid him out in the warm sunlight and fanned him a while with his hat, trying to bring back the breath of life. "'Guilty,' he said presently, coming back with a sober face. "'That's a dead bee. No tellin' how many was dependent on him or what plans he had. Maybe you gin him a lot of pleasure to fly round in the sunlight, workin' every fair day.' It's all over now. He had a gloomy face for an hour after that, and many a time in the days that followed I heard him speak of the murdered bee. We lay resting a while after dinner and watching a big city of ants. Uncle Eb told me how they tilled the soil of the mound every year and sowed their own kind of grain, a small white seed like rice and reaped their harvest in the late summer, storing the crop in their dry cellars underground. He told me also the story of the ant-lion, a big beetle that lives in the jungles of the grain and the grass, of which I remember only an outline, more or less imperfect. Here it is in my own rewording of his tale. On a bright day, one of the little black folks went off on a long road in a great field of barley, he was going to another city of his own people to bring helpers for the harvest. He came shortly to a sandy place where the barley was thin and the hot sunlight lay near to the ground. In a little valley close by the road of the ants he saw a deep pit in the sand, with steep sides sloping to a point in the middle and as big around as a biscuit. Now the ants are a curious people and go looking for things that are new and wonderful as they walk abroad, so they have much to tell worth hearing after a journey. The little traveler was young and had no fear, so he left the road and went down to the pit and peeped over the side of it. "'What in the world is the meaning of this queer place?' he asked himself as he ran around the rim. In a moment he had stepped over, and the soft sand began to cave and slide beneath him. 
Quick as a flash, the big lion beetle rose up in the center of the pit and began to reach for him. Then his legs flew in the caving sand, and the young ant struck his blades in it to hold the little he could gain. Upward he struggled, leaping and floundering in the dust. He had got near the rim and had stopped, clinging to get his breath, when the lion began flinging the sand at him with his long feelers. It rose in a cloud and fell on the back of the ant and pulled at him as it swept down. He could feel the mighty cleavers of the lion striking near his hind legs and pulling the sand from under them. He must go down in a moment, and he knew what that meant. He had heard the old men of the tribe tell often how they hold one helpless and slash him into a dozen pieces. He was letting go, in despair, when he felt a hand on his neck. Looking up, he saw one of his own people reaching over the rim, and in a jiffy they had shut their fangs together. He moved little by little as the other tugged at him, and in a moment was out of the trap and could feel the honest earth under him. When they had got home and told their adventure, some were for going to slay the beetle. "'There is never a pit in the path of duty,' said the wise old chief of the little black folks. "'See that you keep in the straight road.' "'If our brother had not left the straight road,' said one who stood near, "'he that was in danger would have gone down into the pit.' "'It matters much,' he answered, "'whether it was kindness or curiosity that led him out of the road. "'But he that follows a fool hath much need of wisdom, "'for if he save the fool, do you not see that he hath encouraged folly?' "'Of course I had then no proper understanding of the chief's counsel, "'nor do I pretend even to remember it from that first telling.' but the tale was told frequently in the course of my long acquaintance with Uncle Eb. The diary of my good old friend lies before me as I write, the leaves turned yellow and the entries dim. I remember how stern he grew of an evening when he took out this sacred little record of our wanderings and began to write in it with his stub of a pencil. He wrote slowly and read and re-read each entry with great care as I held the torch for him. "'Be still, boy, be still,' he would say when some pressing interrogatory passed my lips, and then he would bend to his work while the point of his pencil bored further into my patience. Beginning here, I shall quote a few entries from the diary as they cover, with sufficient detail, an uneventful period of our journey. August 20th. Killed a partridge today. Biled it in the teapot for dinner. Went good. Fourteen mild. August 21st. Seen a deer this morning. Fred fit again. Come near spilling the wagon. Had to stop and fix the axe. Ten mild. August 22nd. Clum a tree this morning after wild grapes. Come near fallen. Gin me a little crick in the back. Willie, he's got a stun bruise. Twelve mild. August 23rd. Went in swimming. Catched a few fish before breakfast. Got provisions and two case knives and one fork. Also one tin pie plate. 
used same to fry fish for dinner. 14 mild. August 24th. Got some spirits for Willie to rub on my back. Boots wearing out. Terrible hot. Lay in the shade in the heat of the day. Gypsies come and camped by us tonight. Ten mild. I remember well the coming of those gypsies. We were fishing in sight of the road, and our fire was crackling on the smooth, cropped shore. The big wagons of the gypsies, there were four of them, as red and beautiful as those of a circus caravan, halted about sundown while the men came over a moment to scan the field. Presently they went back and turned their wagons into the siding and began to unhitch. Then a lot of barefooted children and women under gay shawls overran the field gathering wood and making ready for night. Meanwhile, swarthy drivers took the horses to water and tethered them with long ropes so they could crop the grass of the roadside. One tall, bony man, with a face almost as black as that of an Indian, brought a big iron pot and set it up near the water. A big stew of beef bone, leeks, and potatoes began to cook shortly, and I remember it had such a goodly smell I was minded to ask them for a taste of it. A little cry of strange people had surrounded us of a sudden. Uncle Eb thought of going on, but the night was coming fast, and there would be no moon, and we were footsore and hungry. Women and children came over to our fire after supper and made more of me than I liked. I remember taking refuge between the knees of Uncle Eb, and Fred sat close in front of us growling fiercely when they came too near. They stood about, looking down at us, and whispered together, and one young miss of the tribe came up and tried to kiss me in spite of Fred's warnings. She had flashing black eyes and hair as dark as the night that fell in a curling mass upon her shoulders, but somehow I had a mighty fear of her and fought with desperation to keep my face from the touch of her red lips. Uncle Eb laughed and held Fred by the collar, and I began to cry out in terror presently, when, to my great relief, she let go and ran away to her own people. They all went away to their wagons, save one young man who was tall with light hair and a fair skin, and who looked like none of the other gypsies. "'Take care of yourself,' he whispered, as soon as the rest had gone. "'These are bad people.' You'd better be off. The young man left us, and Uncle Eb began to pack up at once. They were going to bed in their wagons when we came away. I stood in the basket, and Fred drew the wagon that had in it only a few bundles. A mile or more further on we came to a lonely, deserted cabin close to the road. It had began to thunder in the distance, and the wind was blowing damp. "'Guess nobody lives here,' said Uncle Eb, as he turned in at the sagging gate and began to cross the little patch of weeds and hollyhocks behind it. "'Door's half down, but I guess it'll do better than no house. "'Gonna rain, sartin.' I was nodding a little about then, I remember, but I was wide awake when he took me out of the basket. The old house stood on a high hill 
and we could see the stars of heaven through the ruined door and one of the back windows. Uncle Eb lifted the leaning door a little and shoved it aside. We heard then a quick stir in the old house, a loud and ghostly rattle it seems now as I think of it, like that made by linen shaking on the line. Uncle Eb took a step backwards as if it had startled him. "'Guess it's nothing to be afraid of,' he said, feeling in the pet of his coat. He had struck a match in a moment. By its flickering light I could see only a bit of rubbish on the floor. "'Full of white owls,' said he, stepping inside, where the rustling was now continuous. "'They'll do us no harm.' I could see them now flying about under the low ceiling. Uncle Eb gathered and gathered an armful of grass and clover in the near field and spread it in a corner, well away from the ruined door and windows. Covered with our blanket, it made a fairly comfortable bed. Soon as we had lain down, the rain began to rattle on the shaky roof and flashes of lightning lit every corner of the old room. I have had ever a curious love of storms, and from the time when memory began its record in my brain, it has delighted me to hear at night the roar of thunder and see the swift play of the lightning. I lay between Uncle Eb and the old dog, who both went asleep shortly. Less wearied, I presume, than either of them, for I had done none of the carrying and had slept a long time that day in the shade of a tree. I was awake an hour or more after they were snoring. Every flash lit the old room like the full glare of the noonday sun. I remember it showed me an old cradle piled full of rubbish, a rusty scythe hung in the rotting sash of a window, a few lengths of stovepipe, and a plow in one corner, and three staring white owls that sat on a beam above the doorway. The rain roared on the old roof shortly and came dripping down through the bare boards above us. A big drop struck in my face and I moved a little. Then I saw what made me hold my breath a moment and cover my head with the shawl. A flash of lightning revealed a tall, ragged man looking in at the doorway. I lay close to Uncle Eb, imagining much evil of that vision, but made no outcry. Snugged in between my two companions, I felt reasonably secure and soon fell asleep. The sun, streaming in at the open door, roused me in the morning. At the beginning of each day of our journey, I woke up to find Uncle Eb cooking at the fire. He was lying beside me this morning, his eyes open. "'Fraid I'm hard sick,' he said as I kissed him. "'What's the matter?' I inquired. He struggled to a sitting posture, groaning so it went to my heart. "'Room it is,' he answered presently. He got to his feet little by little, and every move he made gave him great pain. With one hand on his cane and the other on my shoulder, he made his way slowly to the broken gate. Even now I can see clearly the fair prospect of that high place, a valley reaching to distant hills and a river winding through it, glimmering in the sunlight. 
a long wooded ledge breaking into naked grassy slopes on one side of the valley, and on the other a deep forest rolling to the far horizon. Between them big patches of yellow grain and white buckwheat and green pasture land and greener meadows and the straight road, with white houses on either side of it, glorious in a double fringe of goldenrod and purple aster and yellow john's wort and the deep blue of the jacob's ladder looks a good deal like the promised land said uncle eb ain't got much further to go he sat on the rotting threshold while i pulled some of the weeds in front of the doorstep and brought kindlings out of the house and built a fire while we were eating, I told Uncle Eb of the man that I had seen in the night. "'Guess you was dreamin', he said, and while I stood firm for the reality of that I had seen, it held our thought only for a brief moment. My companion was unable to walk that day, so we lay by in the shelter of the old house, eating as little of our scanty store as we could do with. I went to a spring nearby for water and picked a good mess of blackberries that I hid away until supper time, so as to surprise Uncle Eb. A longer day than that we spent in the old house after our coming I have never known. I made the room a bit tidier and gathered more grass for bedding. Uncle Eb felt better as the day grew warm. I had a busy time of it that morning, bathing his back in the spirits, and rubbing until my small arms ached. I have heard him tell often how vigorously I worked that day, and how I would say, "'I'll take care of you, Uncle Eb, won't I, Uncle Eb?' as my little hands flew with redoubled energy on his bare skin. That finished, we lay down sleeping until the sun was low, when I made ready the supper that took the last of everything we had to eat. Uncle Eb was more like himself that evening, and, sitting up in the corner as the darkness came, told me the story of Squirrel Town and Frog Ferry, which came to be so great a standby in those days that, even now, I can recall much of the language in which he told it. Once, he said, there was a boy that had two gray squirrels in a cage. They kept thinking of the time they used to scamper in the treetops and make nests and eat all the nuts they wanted and play I spy in the thick leaves. And they grew poor and looked kind of ragged and sickly and downhearted. When he brought them outdoors, they used to look up in the trees and run in the wire wheel as if they thought they could get there sometime if they kept going. As the boy grew older, he see it was cruel to keep him shut in a cage, but he had had him a long time and couldn't bear to give him up. One day he was out in the woods a little back of the clearing. All at once he heard a swift holler. T'was nearby and echoed so he couldn't tell which way it come from. He run for home, but the critter catched him before he got out of the woods and took him into a cave and gave him to the little swifts to play with. The boy cried terrible. The Swifts, they laughed and nudged each other. Oh, ain't he cute, says one. He's a beauty, says another. Curious how he can get along without any fur, says the mother Swift, 
as she run her nose over his bare foot. He thought of his folks waitin' for him, and he begged him to let him go. Then they come and smelt him over. "'You're such a cunnin' critter,' says the mother swift. "'We couldn't spare you.' "'Want to see my mother?' says the boy, sobbing. "'Couldn't afford to let you go, you're so cute,' says the swift. "'Bring the poor critter a bone and a bit of snake meat.' The boy couldn't eat. They fixed a bed for him, but twarn't clean. The feel of it made his back ache, and the smell of it made him sick to his stomach. When the swifts had company, they'd bring him over to look at him there in his dark corner. "'It's a boy,' said the mother swift, poking him with a long stick. "'Wouldn't you like to see him run?' Then she punched him until he got up and ran around the cave for his life. Happened one day that a very benevolent swift came into the cave. "'It's a pity to keep the boy here,' said he. "'He looks bad.' "'But he makes fun for the children,' said the Swift. "'Fun that makes misery is only fit for a fool,' said the visitor. "'They let him go that day. "'Soon as he got home, he thought of the squirrels "'and was tickled to find him alive. "'He take him off to an island in the middle of a big lake "'that very day and set the cage on the shore and opened it. He thought he would come back some time and see how they was ginning along. The cage was made of light wire and had a tin bottom fastened to a big piece of plank. At fust they was afraid to leave it and peeked out of the door and scratched their heads as if they thought it a risky business. After a while one stepped out careful and then the other followed. They tried to climb a tree, but their nails was wore off, and they kept falling back. Then they went off in the brush to find some nuts. There was only pines and poppies and white birch and a few berry bushes on the island. They went to the water's edge on every side, but there was nothing there a squirrel to give a flirt of his tail fur. Twas near dark when they come back to the cage, hungry as two bears. They found a few crumbs of bread in the cup and divided them even. Then they went to bed in their old nest. It had been raining a week in the mountains. That night the lake rose a foot or more, and fore morning the cage began to rock a teeny bit as the water lifted the plank. They slept all the better for that, and they dreamed they was up in a tree at the end of a big bow. The cage begun to sway sideways, and then it let go on the shore and spun round once or twice and sailed out in the deep water. There was a light breeze blowing offshore, and pretty soon it was pitching like a ship in the sea. But the two squirrels was very tired and never woke up till sunrise. They got a terrible scare when they see the water round them and felt the motion of the ship. Both of them ran into the wire wheel, and that bore down the stern of the ship, so the underwires touched the water. They made it spin like a buzz saw, and got their clothes all wet. The ship went faster when they worked the wheel, and by and by they got tired and come out on the main deck. The water washed over it a little, so they climb up the roof that was a kind of a hurricane deck. 
It made the ship sway and rock fearful, but they hung on amidships and clung to the handle that stuck up like a topmast. Their big tails was spread over their shoulders, and the wind rose and the ship went faster and faster. They could see the main shore where the big woods come down to the water, and all the while it kept a coming nearer and nearer. But they was so hungry, didn't seem possible they could live to get there. You know, squirrels are a saving people. In the day of plenty, they think of the day of poverty and lay by for it. All at once, one of them thought of a few kernels of corn he had pushed through a little crack in the tin floor one day a long time ago. It happened there was quite a hole under the crack, and each of them had stored some kernels unbeknown to the other. So they had a good supper and some left for a bite in the morning. Four daylight, the ship made her pot and lay to, side live a log in a little cove. The bullfrogs jumped on her main deck and began to holler soon as she hove to, All ashore! All ashore! All ashore! The two squirrels woke up, but lay quiet till the sun rose. Then they come out on the log it looked like a long dock and run ashore and found some of their own folks in the bush. And when they bed-told their story, the old father of the tribe got up in a tree and hollered himself hoarse, preaching about how it paid to be saving. "'And we should learn to save our wisdom as well as our nuts,' said a sassy brother, "'for each needs his own wisdom for his own affairs.' And the little ship went back and forth across the cove as the wind blew. The squirrels had many a fine ride in her, and the frogs were the ferrymen. And all along that shore t'was known as Frog Ferry among the squirrel folks. It was very dark when he finished the tale, and as we lay gaping a few minutes after my last query about those funny people of the lake margin, I could hear nothing but the chirping of the crickets. I was feeling a bit sleepy when I heard the boards creak above our heads. Uncle Eb raised himself and lay braced upon his elbow, listening. In a few moments we heard a sound as of someone coming softly down the ladder at the other end of the room. It was so dark I could see nothing. "'Who's there?' Uncle Eb demanded. "'Don't point that gun at me,' somebody whispered. This is my home, and I warn you to leave it, or I'll do you harm. End of chapter 4 Recording by Roger Moline